We did it. Good job, everybody. We did it. Welcome, everyone, to Executive Exercises, sister podcast of the Ponytails podcast. I am Andres Gamboa, uh, joined by Lee McCroskey, Alicia Huck, and Will Metcher. Hopefully, you guys uh, enjoy this episode, provide some value. It's a little twist on the old uh, Ponytails podcast theme, where instead of asking uh, about Southwestern experience, we talk to our guests um, about different career advice that they would give, and we have people from all sorts of different industries um, oh, Pat Roach is also now joining us, so we are excited for that. Thank you for coming today. We are going to be talking to, uh, we are going to be drilling Alicia Huck with some questions. Um, we all came prepared for these, um, and so I will pass it over to Lee to uh, mitigate or uh, what's what's the word now? I'm looking for mitigate. Yeah, mitigate. Let's mitigate. mitigate. Yeah. It's my second language. Okay, come on now. Let, all right, let's let's asphyxiate the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> makes no sense. What are we talking about today? Okay. Uh, welcome. Yeah, welcome. It, it's always weird when you do such a nice little intro and you get the music going and you go, here's Lee, do another intro. Okay. Um, we're just here. Last week, we had a great time with Pat. Pat shared some cool insights and a little biography of why he's successful. Now, we're going to shift gears since that was, we had thousands of people write in and say that was a tremendous episode. We need to, we need to hear, well, maybe not thousands, but two that said that was really good <laughs> no, it was more than two i don't know i'm making it up but alicia we thought we should do the same thing with alicia because she, she has had a interesting path in her career an interesting story when it comes to the arc of her career and maybe we can uh, just glean some insights about how she makes maverick and company work so well so anyway we'll just jump in alicia do you do you want to, we have heard your story on ponytails about how you got into doing what you're doing, but can you give us just a, a quick flyover of that in case people missed the episode? Sure. So I sold books for five summers. That's of course the source of all my mastery. And then I bounced around a little bit after I sold books, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, eventually I decided I was like, well, I could be a consultant. I saw somebody else do some stuff and I was like, I can do that. I could totally do that. I could do that better than she could, which was not accurate. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to be like a consultant. And I'd never been to a networking meeting. I didn't know anything but direct sales from Southwestern. Um, and so I fumbled around for a long time. Like there were profitability problems while I tried to figure out who I should work with, what I should do with them. And, um, and then eventually I finally, finally figured it out. And so now I'm a coach and consultant and I work with executive teams in fast growing companies. I'm getting back into speaking and, you know, just kicking butt, taking names wherever I go. And can I just um, say, by the way, I'm so bummed because I was so excited about what you guys did with Pat because I got to watch him live and in person and then I missed the actual episode where you guys recorded. And now I have all this pressure on me to be as awesome as he was and get thousands of. So like it's yeah. I'm feeling a little it's, like the heat is on. Yeah, it's not going as well as it did with him. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd do the out the nose spurt. You're so close. Uh, <laughs> so close. No. Never <laughs> avoided. 
your your little intro there did spawn a question in my mind how when you said you kind of bumbled or stumbled around for a little while how long was that and i know there's a learning curve because you were like i'm gonna be a consultant i don't know what i'm doing but yeah. how long did that take and when did things fall into place um honestly things so i started maverick in 2004 and officially, right, did that full time. Um, and it probably took about, honestly, 10 years. Um, oh. I don't think it should have taken that long, by the way. So the, the other thing that's probably important for people to know is um, I just had some childhood stuff that I didn't realize I needed to sort out. And when I look back now, it was always really confusing. Like, well, I'm, I'm good at what I do. And I no sales. How come I'm not making a raging success of everything, right? I'm doing good work with the people I work with, but man, finances were up and down for a long time and did public classes and did individual work and work with teams and all over the place. Um, and when I look back now, I actually think that was sort of um, my own mind's way of protecting me from things I wasn't ready to deal with. So it just... When you're worried about, you know, okay, is rent handled next month or not? How's that going to work? Um, you just don't have a lot of space to do deep personal work. So what's interesting is it was probably 2013. I was working with a manufacturing company here in Denver. And I think I was finally emotionally mature enough and ready enough to deal with some of that stuff from my past. And that's really the same time that I found my sweet spot working with executive teams and everything really took off. Yeah. Hey, so I got another question. Sorry, guys. I'm just uh, monopolizing. Um, so how did you know that you needed to explore your past? I'll put it there. Mm -hmm. That's mean, a great question. Yeah. Um, so at the end of 2012, two things happened um, at about the same time. So it was probably November, December. And I went through a pretty tough breakup. And I, at the time, I remember thinking to myself, you know, for years, people, or I would hear people say, and I would say things like, well, I just haven't met the right person. And then at that point, I was like, that's probably not true anymore. <laughs> like, I'm probably at a stage of life where I've met lots of right people. Maybe I'm not the right person, right? So I was like, sort of introspective, like, I don't want to keep doing this. Um, I don't know what's wrong. And then the other thing that happened is um, I was nervous about going back to my hometown to be with my family, my immediate family for Christmas. Hmm. I didn't understand what was making me so anxious. And so I had this thought like, well, when I, when I come back from Christmas, I'll go find a therapist and I'll do like five sessions and I'll just figure out my whole life. And, you know, several years later, there were some real breakthroughs in there, but um, yeah, I think, I always made fun of people who didn't, who say things like, I just didn't know how bad my childhood was. Like, I just don't, I didn't remember it. I'm like, what, were you not there? But I, I remembered everything. I just didn't have the appropriate context for it. So I wasn't aware at that time of how it was influencing my decision-making, some personality quirks, right? Like I, I can look back and I have a lot of clarity about that now because I've worked with some really great people, but um, you know, it, and it's not easy work to do is the other thing. So it's easy to put it off and kind of push it to the background. And part of what I would say, if somebody suspects they maybe have some stuff they should deal with is you probably do because yeah. becoming an adult human is not easy in the best of circumstances or families. Right. Um, and it's really worth it to do that work. Like it, I'm a much calmer person now. I'm much more proactive. I'm, 
I've mellowed a little, which will surprise some people who are like, wow, you seem pretty intense right now. Oh, you should have known me 15 years ago. That was a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, wow. So, so you, you would suggest most people would probably benefit from some counseling because we're all screwed up to some degree. Well, I think becoming a human is hard. And I think, um, I think two things. So one of the most frequent recommendations I made in the past 12 months to clients was get a damn therapist. Mm. Because if you're a high performing yeah. individual, odds are good. You're not that way by accident. Odds are good that that's some sort of coping mechanism. Maybe, you know, it could have been that you had a sick parent who wasn't emotionally available a lot, right? There are a million, you don't necessarily have to be raised in a, by terrible people to have incidents in your past that color how your life goes, right? Like Andres and his family were running away from being murdered, but moving to Nebraska, not the easiest thing in the world, right? Um, so one, if you have stuff in your past, that makes a difference. But then two, even if you don't have anything in your past, being a high performer at a really high level is a very high pressure job. You have a lot of responsibilities. And I think therapy is a great version of containment. Like it's a place and time when you can go and unpack the emotions and the pressures. Some people use coaches for that. Some people have a therapist. It depends on what you need, right? But having that uh, place where you can go and take all those conversations and that weight and have someone professionally reflect back to you, like, hey, you, you might not be seeing this as clearly as you think you are, or here's a place where it seems like you're repeating a pattern. That is... I mean, it's, it's, an, it's crazy to me that you wouldn't have that. Right. So I, question, and then I'll shut up. What's the difference between a coach and a therapist? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems a lot more trendy to have a coach and a lot more yeah. safe than, you know, I'm going for some therapy. Yeah. You know, that's a hard question to answer. I think that um, the best answer is probably that therapists are specifically trained in how to manage and monitor in a healthy way what is happening for you and what is happening to them. And the truth is about coaching, there are eight, anybody can say that they're a coach and there are different kinds of certification programs and different kinds of credentialing. But a lot of that, if you're a coach, is focused on you producing results with your client, how you run your business. It's not necessarily um, teaching you things like what trauma looks like and the different ways it might present in a human being. And so right. you don't get that technical background that's really going to inform and help you make smart choices. Yeah. So I think, I think all coaches, I mean, if you are who you are, no matter where you go. So I think all coaches sort of drift into some lanes that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, just coaching, right. They have a therapeutic result or outcome, but I think, all coaches should be really, really, really careful about that because in some cases you don't even know what's driving you and your interactions with this person. So you may not be consciously aware of what your patterns are. Like I have a client who has um, an extraordinary amount of trauma in their background. And so I talked to my therapist about my relationship with this client to make sure that I was, you know, serving that person as well as I could. Like it's, they have a technical set of knowledge and training that is highly valuable and um, extraordinarily useful. So if you're in doubt, I would get a therapist. And I'm saying that as somebody who coaches people. And I often tell people to go 
get that. And it's fine cool. to do it simultaneously if you can. That's good. I, I remember just as an aside, Alan Clements back in the late 80s, this is a long time ago, was going through some therapy work himself. Mm -hmm. You go through it, as I'm sure you discovered, you make lots of discoveries and you want to share that with people to some degree. And he put us through a whole AA course, Alcoholics Anonymous, Sexaholic Anonymous, every, he put all the sales managers through this crash course on how to spot addictions. So we were all suddenly keenly aware of how we were working with students, but we had no training. Yeah. So it was effective in awareness, ineffective in follow through. So that's probably what made you effective because you went through it and then you can spot and also coach and counsel appropriately. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a trained therapist, so right. I have enough experience that I can, you know, I'll give you one funny example. I used to be, um, when I got angry, I would get really super angry and sometimes get really intensely angry about stuff that didn't actually matter, like was suspiciously not a big deal. And that is a good indicator, like somebody having an outrageously in a, like, it's just not proportionate reaction to something can be a sign that they maybe have trauma and maybe that just got triggered. Like triggered's become this weird code word in our society for some kind yeah. of flake thing. But yeah. what it really means is like, literally there's a section of your brain that just shut down and there's an animal portion of it that took over. Like that's a real thing. That's a real experience. And when, you know, when soldiers come back from war and fireworks are hard for them, for example, we don't laugh and say, well, you're just being a weenie or a snowflake. We're like, oh, that's a real thing that happened to you. And yeah. real triggers are like that. They sort of override. So being able to recognize that in myself means that sometimes I can see it in others, but I'm not trained for that. So I, I when I smell it, I'm like, you should get a therapist. So you're just simply at that point directing people to someone who can assist. Yeah. I mean, they may talk about some of the deeper issues that are going on and we'll talk about how that plays into the choices they're making as a leader, who they're hiring, who they're not, you know, like how it's all playing out, but um, that should be dealt with professionally. And if yeah. there's ever any question, you got to encourage people to go get that help. And it's so worth it. It's probably also helpful for your coaching. Just have that knowledge for themselves, right? It's kind of like when someone takes like a strength finder test or something like that, but it's like yep. the ultimate strength finder test. Cause it's like, someone someone who's professional at dissecting your brain from the yeah. outside you know that's awesome if they should have a, weak, a weakness finder test too well yeah. if somebody has a broken leg and i'm there to coach them on running <laughs> nothing's going to make a difference until you go fix the leg it just Amen. won't right? that's good write that down it's good stuff write that down that's good write that down Oof. Wow, I didn't think this is where we were going to go. This is well, I'm certainly ready to go further on this one, but I'm going to ease off because uh, just uh, you know, privacy issues. So, anybody else have a question? So you went through this turmoil, yes, there lots of ups and downs. You okay. came out, you found your niche. Yes. Okay, so well, let's switch gears real quick then, because first of all, that was awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. I was really really good stuff um the i'll take i'll go next and just kind of switch gears here a little bit and focus a little bit more on the coaching aspect of what you do and to kind of highlight um because here's the thing we all know we all know you and you're and we all know you crush at life and so um for people who are listening 
this I wanted to ask this because I think it provide value from your perspective. So uh, the question is something along the lines of like, from what you do and the people that you work with, what is the most common mistakes or misconceptions when you meet a new client about their business, right? So we're talking about you're talking to CEOs, powered people, probably some, probably a man because of the statistics, and they're probably ego driven big time. Like, what is the most common thing to look out for? Or like, or is that the case? Like, what are the misconceptions about what you do? And like, when people approach at that level, approach you for coaching? Yeah, I love that question. That um, the way you put it one time is like, you know, what are the things that the mistakes people make that you see over and over and over. And, um, you know, I just got off a coaching call with a client this morning who is, I mean, twice this week, I've been on the phone with a client and ready to cry at how inspired I am by what good people they are, how grateful they are, how hard they're working. So, you know, in the population at large, there might be a lot of egomaniacs at that level, but I don't work with people like that. The people that I work with are, they're very competitive. They're super intense most of the time, but they want to win in the right way and for the right reasons. And they want to bring other people with them. Like the person I was talking with this morning, he really wants, he happens to be an old bookman, and he really wants people to learn and grow while they're with his company. He's like, when we sold books, you know, it wasn't just about selling books, right? You did that as a way to produce all these other benefits. He wants his company to operate that same way. Like that's incredibly inspiring, right? Um, but there are some things that pop up over and over. So I would say if you are that kind of entrepreneurial type and you're running a company, these are the big things. Like it was really easy to make the list when I when you asked it. Um, number one thing that I see is inconsistent attention. Like they jump around too much. I work with a lot of people who are super, super smart, very, very high energy, massively high um, capacity to remember things and do things, but they, they bounce around from thing to thing. So they will, they'll focus on something really intensely for a little while. And it's, you know, Pat, I need you to X, Y, Z, get all this stuff done. Right. And then they don't talk about it for like three months. They assume it's handled. And then randomly one day, some point in the future, they remember they wanted to do this thing. And so then they're, why didn't you get that done? And Pat's like, what are you talking about? You you picked 512 other things since then. So they can't they can't pace with you, right? Or like their risk tolerance is so much higher than the people around them. So they just lose people that way, right? They're people are doing the best they can running after you, trying to keep up. So it's not that you need to do the same boring things every day and you don't need to review 600 spreadsheets, but consistently paying attention to a few things that really, really matter in your business may, you know, like in Southwestern 30 demos a day, right? This many hours, this many, blah, blah, blah. That simplified it all. Right. So you got to make sure that whatever those things are for your business, that you know what they are, that the team knows what they are and that you sit down and pay attention to them on a regular basis. So that kind of consistency gives you a lot of predictability. Good one, right? It's weird, like stuff you wouldn't think of. And then the second thing I would say is get a controller, get a CFO way before you think you need one. People, when your business is small, you have a better sense of the money because you're touching everything all the time. You know all the transactions all the time. The bigger it gets, you you can't have that same level of data input because other people are handling those bills, whatever. 
you, you lose track of where the cash is. And your CFO is not there to make sure that your books work, right? That's your controller and your, your bookkeeper. CFO is there to do analysis. They're there to tell you whether or not you're making money on this stuff. And especially if you have inventory, you have products coming in and out of your business, you don't know. You think you do, but you don't know. Costs get out of control. I worked with a company once that they found um, they had been underselling their top rated product, their top selling product, underpricing it to the tune of it cost them that year $1.5 million. Jeez. Because they had never done that analysis, right? They just didn't have their books in order, right? If your books aren't in order, you can't borrow money when you need to. Like the numbers will tell you everything. You have to learn how to read the numbers. You need a CFO way before you think you do, and you can get a fractional person. Um, and then just a few more. One, people or number three, people run their businesses by the force of their personality. So if you're charismatic and powerful, right? And you can motivate people and get them to do like, so you having a personal relationship with them is how you produce results. But then what happens when you're not there? Not much or all the wrong things, or you turn it over to a different leader. And if they're not as charismatic, they don't have the same relationships, then you see the business go down. So if you're running it by personality, and that includes you hire people and you work around their well, this works because Joe is like this or Mary is like this. You got to build your business based on systems and processes and then plug in amazing people. Capture that, build around that. But if you're if things are working because you're a really hard worker and you have this high level of drive and integrity and then you found two other super doers like you, you're screwed. Something is going to come along that's going to be beyond your capacity and your business won't actually be built to handle it right? You're Fred Flintstone. You need to build a damn engine. <laughs> yeah, that's a reference going way back. So I'm probably the only one that knows. The Fred <laughs> yeah, but do. Yeah, uh, thank you, Google. They'll be fine. Google and then a couple others. Um, one, they don't build infrastructure. That's a big one for me, right? Systems and processes build tools, right? So if you think about selling books, we had a really um, robust infrastructure. Every kid called somebody, reported in their stats at night. You could see what was happening. And that was a chain. That's a process. That's a system. That's a tool to move data through the organization so you can make good decisions. You need to build that stuff in your company. And that's hard because it takes time away from serving clients right now. You may not know what you should build. That can be really tricky. But failure to build it is always an issue. And then the last thing I would say is... Um, You've got to be willing to hold people accountable and you've got to be willing to fire people way faster than you are. Hmm. Because almost everybody has people floating around that are little, um, there are little viruses just making messes all around your company. Their attitude is wrong. They're entitled. They're snotty. They don't work hard. They're nice, but incompetent. And that stuff just undermines everything else that you're trying to do from a culture standpoint. It's a nightmare. Yeah, Will. Oof. Yeah, I I love that. And to kind of follow up with that with a with a question. So I just recently did a big training for a, a organization and we talked about the idea of cutting bad apples. And one of their senior VPs, you know, kind of chimed in and they're like, Well, what if one of your bad apples is one of your top producers? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's 
in my mind, the reason that they're a bad apple is because they're polluting the rest of the environment, right? You can be a top producer and not necessarily do everything the same way, or there can be some quirks, whatever, right? But if you're a bad apple and you're the top producer, it's even more important that we get you out of there. And if you're scared about that, it's because you haven't done the right work with the rest of your team. So you haven't hired the right people, you haven't trained them appropriately. And the thing I always say to CEOs that and bosses that makes a difference is, listen, whatever this person is, right, their bad behavior that you don't like, you got to remember they're on their best behavior around you. So whatever they're doing when you're in the room, they're doing it 10 or 100 times worse when you're not in the room. And your job is to be fair to everyone. So what you're actually doing is you're asking all your good people, the people who show up with a good attitude, who give good effort, who are um, consistently producing results, you're asking them to put up with this bullshit because it makes you uncomfortable to think about letting that person go. And I had a CEO once and she had turned herself inside out because there was an employee she was getting ready to fire. And she was like, okay, I, I helped him find a new job. I gave him this much severance. I feel really bad, but we finally made it all work. And I go, great. What are you going to do for all the people that were doing a good job? Hmm. Like you gave him severance. You helped him get a new job. You gave him all this like leeway. What about all the people who've been working their butt off the entire time? What did they get? So your job as a leader, you're the only person who can make certain decisions. If you're not willing to make them, you have to remember that you're forcing the other people around that bad apple to put up with whatever it is that they have to put up with to continue to have that person in their environment. And that is. That's a good question. So how often have you seen, uh, I just remember thinking that if someone is, misbehaving it's either an education problem or an attitude problem if if they don't know what to do right you can't just go sorry you're fired you're not doing yes. it the competence issue but on the other hand if they know what to do and they're not doing it or they're being belligerent bad apple yep then you address the attitude how often have you seen someone step in and truly make an attitude adjustment where a bad apple becomes healed hmm. I, I think it's probably under 20% would be my guess. Okay. And by yeah. the way, I agree with you. I don't, you don't just fire people. Like um, my friend, Jay Mays, who does sales training, he says you it's three strikes and you're out and three outs. There's a change in the inning, which I really like, right? Like it's not all or nothing. You're either winning or you're losing. If you do one thing wrong, you're out. Right. I think about it in terms of attitude, effort, and results. You got to be giving me two out of the three all the time, right? And if you have like a divorce in your life and one of them slips for a while, we can understand that. But if consistently your attitude sucks or your results are inconsistent or I can't count on your effort, what are we doing? So it's my job to sit you down and go, and I think of it, the standard I use is called the fighting chance standard. So if you think you might want to fire somebody, you ask yourself three questions. First question is, did you set appropriate, like, did you set appropriate expectations for the role? Do they know what their job is? And if they don't, or you didn't, then you go back and make sure they know what the job is. And then the right. second thing is, did you train them? Have they been trained? Do they have the skills and the knowledge they need to actually do the role? And if not, then you go back and do that. And then the third question is, have you hold, held them accountable? And if you haven't held them accountable, then you do that. But if you've done all three of those things and they still suck, 
it's time to move on. And I believe that's also a gift to them because nobody wants to be in a job they're bad at where they don't produce good results. And they're kind of not liked because of the jerky things they do. They're not winning with you. Set them free so they can go win somewhere else. And if you feel bad, throw more severance at them, but get them out of your building. So what percent, so of, what percent of CEOs, I'll just pick that level, are uh, effective at confronting bad apples? And what percent are just like, they just want to be liked at all costs so they don't, they're not willing to hold people accountable? Yeah, it's even, I think, a little trickier than that because some of them are, um, their weaknesses, they can be too angry and too like direct, yeah. too aggressive. So too sometimes much. they don't confront because of that. Um, yeah. I would reframe that just a little bit. I usually ask people like, how many of you know accountability is important? And 100% of people know accountability is important. Go, okay, great. How many of you do accountability in your organization? And then the number's down to like under 50. And you go, how many of you do it consistently? And now we're down to like 10%, right? And then you go, how many of you do it consistently and well at all levels? And if you find that, invest in that company because they're going to make a jillion dollars. Good. It's hard. And we don't teach confrontation in our society. We don't have helpful models for it, right? So how do you confront someone, maybe they're not a bad apple, maybe they're a good apple who's, you know, not delegating to their people. Like their fault is they're working too hard. They're taking too much of the burden on them, but that means we're not developing the leaders underneath you and eventually you're gonna burn out. So we're all gonna lose. So how do you confront people in a way that changes their behavior without damaging the relationship they have to you is something almost nobody has learned because Almost nobody's teaching it, and right. it's tricky and awkward. Because work isn't just work; work is also social, and there's a consequence and a cost, and it's fear, and we don't know how. And so, yep. that's yep. a yep. Yep. thing. Great old book I'd recommend. I'm looking for it on my shelf. Patrick Lencioni. Yep. Five yep. dysfunctions of a team. Yep. That's Some of book. you may have seen him when he was uh, speaking. It's on YouTube or a TED talk. No, it's YouTube. Anyway, great talk on how to develop a team. And he talks a lot about trust and accountability. It would fit into what you're saying. Well, so, he was the first addition to that book, uh, 1776. God, Will, you're always giving me crap because I'm recommending good books that just happen to be slightly older. You're a chronological snob. You know what happens? Whenever you say a really good book and Will feels bad because he hasn't read it, he's like, now I got to make fun of me. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a reflection on me. Here's what you needed. The Shy Man's Guide to Success with Women. Why do you have that? Because a friend of mine on the swim team wrote it and did it, you know, self-published. Anyway, oh, he knows a lot. it does not look well read. That is a it thick book. It looks as crisp as the day it was born. What are you gonna do with it? I didn't need it. Okay, let's ask another question. What about Pat? What you've been? I know you're a thoughtful guy. Any questions for Alicia? Well, I'm. I'll go back to. What, by the way, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. I will go back to the question that I posted in the chat prior to the show. I, I wonder, okay, so having created a business and 
charting path, you know, uh, I have hit certain roadblocks where I'm like, wow, that was just wrong. It was the wrong path. Who knew? I didn't know it until I smashed into this wall, but here we are. Now what are we going to do? Because the implications are, it's not just, uh, it's not just me coming to realization that a change must be made. It's also now I've got employees that are going to have to deal with this change and how much of this is going to be uh, moving a goalpost, which like, hey, I know I told you guys to go over here, but actually I need you to go over here. Um, Super frustrating from somebody who's been given those instructions. Uh, But if you realize this leads us to a brick wall, you've got to make that change. So what are some things you've run into as you're coaching people where you go, um, you have to make this change. And here's the way you're going to have to do this with the structure of your company in a way that you won't lose all your salespeople or you lose all your employees, whatever their roles may be. Yeah. Um, I love that question. And a lot of times when I come into a business, I am the change agent. Like we're so doing You're the bad person. I'm the tip of the spear. So um, I'm, and I'm, I took a class one time and one of the leadership classes and class. And one of the outcomes of the class was that you would be able to stand powerfully in the face of no agreement. So like you're saying a, and the rest of the world is like purple. And you could do that without losing your confidence, your ability to move forward, all those kinds of things. So I feel like that's one of the things that I'm really good at. And it's interesting and very telling in how you ask the question. Because you're like, how do you make these changes without losing all your people? And in my mind, if we're making the right changes, we're only going to lose the wrong people. If we do it in the right way. And I'm not with we're going to lose people entirely. Right? So Mm -hmm. it may be that there's a part of you that is... um, people who are really collaborative in nature, that's the way they look at it, right? Like the pain and the focus on that person. For me, I look at it like, this is the thing that is going to happen. It is inevitable. It's like the tide and you can go outside and you can yell at the rain, but you either get get an umbrella or you're gonna get wet because there's just, this is what's happening. And I think if we, what I have found to be the most successful is if you are really direct with people, right? Don't hide it from them. Don't pretend like it's not happening. Don't pretend like it's not going to be bad. Don't pretend like they're not going to hate it. Everybody hates change. Even when it's a change they want, it might be a change they fought for. They will still resist the change because we like stasis. It's predictable, saves us energy, right? So one, I think it's useful to know that people resist change. My thing is um, they, people resist change. They look like one of the seven dwarfs. So there's a change coming. One person's just sleepy and they just can't remember what it was that you said. Were we doing that? Oh my God. And one person is going to be doc and try to talk you out of it based on you don't understand how the impact it's going to have. They're going to outsmart you with it, right? All of those things are just resistance to change. So if when the resistance shows up, you can acknowledge it, but it's not relevant because we are doing this. So part of how I help people move through change is I don't pretend it's not going to happen. 
and I don't leave leeway. You're going to have all the reactions you want. And this is what we're doing. So your job as a professional is to sort yourself out about that. And my job is to help you. But this is what's going to happen. So let's not pretend otherwise. And I hold a really strong, steady line about that. So people can get squirrely over here, but we're still doing it. And it makes a huge difference when you give context to the change, right? Not just good spin, but like really actually explain, this is why we're making this change. We did mess up. We could continue to mess up for another year and cost ourselves money and shoot ourselves in the foot. Seemed like it would be smarter to stop, right? We're going to go this way now. Provide a little bit of runway for people, right? Like teach them what's going to happen next. Give them a little breathing room because some people are really change averse and some people are not. So if you can create a little space between the day they know about the change and the day the change happens, it gives them some some, uh, place to find themselves. And then um, phase it in human beings. And I'm not saying this to be condescending, but training human beings is like training a puppy. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Nope. Not over there, over here. You're attending. Nope. Not over there, over here. Right. We walk like this. Here's how we do it. We go potty outside, not inside. Right. But if you can phase it in, then It's, you know, first phase might be, hey, we're going to practice this for two weeks, this new change to our reporting. And then on on September 1st, it's going to become formal. And then we have to do it that way. So we're going to practice and get it wrong and forget and all that. And that's fine. But for sure, by the end of the year, this is going to be the system that we use, the way that we do it. Everybody will be well-versed in how to manage it. And it's handled. So you got time, but we're doing it. And then you got to practice accountability. And you got to be willing to call people on, hey, listen, I get that this isn't great for you, but pouting is not allowed. Like this attitude you're presenting, we're not doing that. <laughs> you need to yell at me, go ahead. But this can't continue. You you remind me, you remind me of this person they used to work for. Because what you're saying is transparency. Like if you, you, we're going to first of all face change and then be transparent about why it's happening. I love that's so good. He this guy uh, there's a big change coming in the company and he like opened up the books and showed everybody how much money was coming in. Everybody, even the most junior person. And he goes, "What we're going to do is we're going to take this money that we just got from this deal and then we're going to acquire this company so then we can acquire this company so then this thing can change." And even though some people were like not in favor of this whole thing, everybody by the end of the meeting was like Oh, okay. And it was just, this is the play we're running. It was amazing, but it's exactly what you just said. Just beautiful. You, yeah. And you you always have the ability to give them all that detail, right? Like it's not always, right. I, I love transparency when you can get it. You can't always get it. Like you just can't. Right. So, but being straight with people and, and I think it's helpful to have people be conscious about how they personally resist change. Hmm what it is you need in a change and making sure that you get it. And that's true in almost any domain, right? Their own self-awareness and maturity and like that. But honestly, my shortcut with new managers is it's attitude, effort, and results. And your people should be giving you all three of those all the time. And if they miss one once in a while, it's fine, but you can call them on attitude. You can call them on effort. It's actually your job to do that. Right. Like your job is to hold that line. So your willingness to call it out 
that makes a huge difference in an appropriate, professional, healthy way, yada, yada, yada. Lee McCroskey, standard hey. panelist, fan of Alicia, who is also hey. a fan of Lee McCroskey. Hey, what, how long do you spend working with the client on the change issue, like prepping them for change, teaching them about change, how the environment's going to change? In other words, that seems to be a phase before you launch into, I mean, um, you need to do, analyze the situation, devise a plan of action, proceed without delay. But one step would be preparing them for change and what's change is like. Yeah. Can you do that? Oh, definitely. It depends on how big of a change. So yeah. when I teach people about accountability, we talk about how some projects are like babysitting your friend's goldfish, <laughs> right? Lower level of responsibility, lower level of risk. Some is like watching your friend's puppy and some is like watching their human child. Oh. Right? So depending on what level we're, right? If it's a goldfish, light and easy, we're going to keep. But if, if we're dealing with the highest level, then that's going to require... Um, more intentionality on our part. I think a dog found a squeaky toy. Can you hear that? Yeah. 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 That's. Are you babysitting a, a dog? Can you not yeah. hear that? <laughs> That's actually downstairs in another part of the house. Wow. Man. Getting after that squeaky toy. Okay, well, we were talking about training puppies, so this is a perfect example, Pat. Thank the dog you got that. excited. The dog was like, let's do Go this. Go be straightforward with your puppy. I got yeah. a little and side effects thing here. Tell them things are going to change. Don't I? Yeah. <laughs> you could still hear. That's so I have, a, I have other questions. Like, no how point. do you, there are people who get all excited about, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a consultant or I'm going to be a coach or I'm going to whatever, pick. And then 10 months later, when inevitably that gets difficult. It's like having a major. I'm majoring in this. I'm excited about it. Well, when you get into the higher level courses, you're like, I'm not excited about this. How do you, how did you know that you were in your right niche and this is where you should stay, even though it sucked? Yeah. Well, to be honest, um, well, you don't I, have to be. yeah, it's always weird when people say, to be honest, like, I'm just going to start prefacing things We're like, I'm going to tell a lie right now. See how <laughs> that flows. Um, for me, the work with clients was never a question. And okay. I'm oddly confident when I go into a situation, especially now, like maybe when I was first starting out, I, there were moments like once I was doing um, a training with a football team and they had a professional, a former NFL player on their coaching staff. And I remember after I met him, I got really rattled and I was like, what am I doing here? Like I'm a five, four blonde. What, why am I here? Right. And then I really had to talk myself in confidence wise. And I was like, well, you're good at running stuff. Go run stuff. And I was like, all right, let's go run stuff. Went great. Right. So for me, it's never been about the work itself because I think I have a pretty good grasp of what I can and can't accomplish. Like I just, Sometimes I'll say to people, especially if I'm doing like conflict resolution stuff, um, if there's a rabbit in the hat, I'm going to find the bunny and pull it out. But if there's no bunny, there's no bunny. Like if, if there's no path to a successful conclusion of this, if we can't solve the problem this way, the best I'm going to be able to do is help you know that there's no bunny and you got to take more radical action. So that part's always worked. I will say though, for me, it's been dealing with the financial ups and downs and my own, like the hard thing about charting your own course 
is that you're the one who's got to chart the course. And there's no rule book that tells you this is the way to do it, right? The way Will might approach a client is probably different than the way that I would, which is why some clients would be more drawn to Will and some might be more drawn to me. But for me, like even right now, I, um, I was in my uh, EQ class with Pat yesterday and you- Was it Jules? Yeah. And yes. She's like, well, where are you at? I'm like, well, I'm anxious and excited. I was like, that's interesting. I'm like, what's going on? I'm trying to figure out like how to make a pretty major financial decision and navigate some changing waters in my own business and what the right answer is for me. Cause I know what the right answer is for Quentin, right? If Quentin were here, he's like, don't, it's actually just buying a new car, but it's while I'm in transition with some clients. And I know Quentin would be like, no, drive the car you have till you die. Right. Like, he's going to freak out when he knows what I bought or when I buy it. Cause it's, it's going to kill him. <laughs> but Okay. You know, I know what his right answer is, right? I know what Alicia 15 years ago might have done that I don't want to do either. So how do I make those choices about where I devote time and energy and what the shoulds are, right? Like I should be working from this many hours a day. The truth is my life works a lot better when I just don't work crazy hours. Like I can do a hundred hour work week and sometimes I will, but there are times when it's like four or five hours and I'm out. And that works really, really well, right? So I think the hardest part for me has been just like when we sold books, just like almost anything that you do really well in life, it's the inner game. It's how you manage you and recognizing when I'm on track, when I'm off track, and what does this version of me today need and want? And how does this version of me operate best? Like I used to do these huge long reports for clients that they didn't ask for they didn't read. I hated and wasn't good at, but I thought this is something that I should produce for them. Right now I'm in a phase of life where I really have been focused on that. I really am magic in the moment. Like it's not 50 hours of research and a binder full of crap. It's being able to show up, look at what's happening, find the thing out of the 6 billion things you could find that will quickly and easily make the biggest difference and push that button in just the right way. And then it's all different. And then I get on a plane and go home. Part of me who was raised in a farming community in South Dakota just feels like that's cheating. And part of me, that feels like cheating. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's just different. Like your hashtag. Yeah. When is you. That's how you got to figure out who you are and when appropriately for you. Yeah. Okay. And it's hard to know sometimes. Metro, did you get to ask your question? No, I think Lee was shunning me for making fun of him. Well, Well, that was just a temporary shun. That shouldn't shut you down. You're stronger than um, that. Go ahead and ask your question. Hey, Will, I have a book for you. It's called The Greatest Salesman in the World. I'd like you to check out scroll number three. <laughs> oh. oh, That's funny because it's an inside joke and we all got it. For those of you who don't know, that, I will persist until I succeed. Go so ahead. Go, I, I, I don't want to – because this could be a, a very – long question and and lee like the question that you asked was good and that was kind of where i wanted to go initially was just like what phase in your business was the toughest but i'm actually curious more so from the standpoint of like your revenue generating time and like what what is like when it comes to growing your business now i mean i would assume 
95% of what you do is referral only and just referral based? Like, do you have to have intention around, I'm using this for revenue generating time. This is what I'm doing during that time. Or is it just, it flows in and you just have to say no to, you know, 75% of the business. What does that look like? Um, yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, so it's interesting at this phase. So for me, when I've done the best, it's, it's always been confusing because whatever, wherever I'm applying force and effort produces nothing. It's just weird stuff pops up over here. So then I'm like, okay, let's go over here and work on this. And then weird stuff pops over here. And I, I hadn't been able to track, um, what were the links between what I was doing and what made a difference, right? Like you're like, well, I'll put a video up on LinkedIn every week and people will find me randomly from LinkedIn and pay me hundreds of thousands of dollars because I put 50 videos on like that does not make any sense. Right. Um, so I'm at a point now where I do get good referrals and people come in and there's, um, a CFO I've worked with at four different companies now who've done amazingly cool stuff. Um, but I have always wanted to figure out what the mechanisms would be in marketing that would lead to a consistent and steady flow of business. And I don't honestly know if consistent is a good expectation. Like I've been doing this a long time and I would love to smooth out those ups and downs, but I don't, I don't know if consistent, I think consistency is this fantasy that we give ourselves when we're selling books that never worked for me when I was selling books either. What worked then was keep the bottoms as high as you could and make the highs way higher, like not try to hit this same amount all the time. So um, I'm actually really excited. I found this marketing team that I've never found a marketing team I was so excited to work with. And I felt like they weren't just telling me all the cool stuff they do. And then they would do that for me. They were like, here's what we think you should do based on how your business works. So it's kind of fun. Um, and the name is super cheesy. So you can all have a good laugh. But they were like, oh, we want you to do a night with Alicia. I was like, wait, what? How's that going? They're like, no, 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 listen, listen, you'll like And I'm like, you guys, I'm already out. They're like, no, no, it'll be really good. So what we're actually going to do is just do like um, a day. So we'll start at like one or two in the afternoon and we'll invite executives, CEOs. And I'm going to invite the CEOs that I already worked with, have worked with. And we'll do like some big picture. Let's take a look at your business. Let's look at and talk about what you need to do next, right? All that thinking that you don't always get time to do. So they'll do it in a room with other people that are similar mindset, growing similar businesses, dealing with similar problems. And then I'll help them zero in on what will make the biggest difference. So they'll get real work done. And then we're gonna do a really banger, like super nice meal and you know, flights of scotch or something. I don't know, that's not my responsibility to plan. But like that kind of thing, I finally feel like that's a good fit for how I want to operate. Like that doesn't make me, what you described, Will, is like, oh, these are your, these are your um, times to go prospect. Or I was like, oh God, I want to die just thinking about it, right? And if you asked me to make a cold call, I would literally rather die. Like can't even hate it. I had a guy call me once and he's like, I sent you a message on Facebook. I sent you six emails. I've left you two voicemails. We want to give you money. Will you please call me back? Like I'm exaggerating a little, but not much. Cause I just, that's not a part that I've always been really strong in. And so I keep looking for how to sort all that out, but 
I've wanted to do that event, that kind of an event with my past clients and current clients for a long time. Because if you bought a business from your parents or you took over a second or third generation family business, you're like, Pat, you built something from scratch and up. That's a unique thing. And not everybody is going to understand you and how you operate. And not everybody's going to want to win the right way where you take your people with you. So I want to put all of those people in a room and let them get something really good. And then we'll have a really good meal. And, you know, I've never really had anything where I was like, oh, if I do these 10 actions, that will result in new revenue. But I feel like with that may not be it, but something like that is a great way to bump into people who should be clients and, you know, pretty low risk. Like I think we're going to charge 1300 bucks or something like that for it. Mm -hmm. And I'll have my clients get to come for free. So, and I will actually enjoy being there. That will be different than other marketing efforts. Like, Oh my God, newsletters. Somebody talked me into a newsletter last year and I was like, how did you even get here? I hate this so much. That's awesome. No, that's such a good way of explaining it too. I have more follow-up questions, but we have two minutes. So. Gold, gold stuff, man. This has been great. Any closing thoughts? Anybody from any? any, any, any better any, than Pat Roach? Am I? Like, where are we in the superstar book well, right now? I don't know, but I don't know, but these are going really well. Actually, both of these, both of those have been really good. Good totally. job, Lee. And can good, I say, Pat, when I watch, I'm so bummed to miss out on the one that we did with you, but um, watching you work with your group was freaking awesome. Like it was really, really beautiful. Looking forward to getting the additional feedback. His Dude. microphone is like, he turned it all the way down because of the dog. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> Your microphone's not picking up. This is the best ending right. to an episode. There, are we, are we, there we go. There we go. That's some great Words. echo, too. Well, you guys, thank you for the good questions. I was really nervous. Like, I don't get nervous anymore, but I was like, I got to do as well as Pat, which Thank always is Alicia, gonna... you just need to you need to win as you. Don't worry about yeah. That. Win as you. So good. Win as you. We're gonna. Right. I'm gonna try to turn around and dump and, and and post both of those episodes by actually tomorrow was when I have them scheduled. So we'll drop them both so people can catch them over the weekend and then get some moments for the week. Let's go. Thank you guys so much for being here. We're gonna. I think this is a good stopping point. We're there's these. We'll we'll stop it here. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll catch you guys at the next one. Bye, everyone. See ya. See ya. Bye. 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 Bye.